0: book of Titus, we've titled this series planted together because Titus is written by the apostle Paul to Titus planting a church in Crete with a desire of seeing healthy churches multiplied throughout uh, the known world. And that is exactly what we are. We are a church plant in an area of the world that needs, uh, churches. And, and we think about church planting. One of the, the desires of our heart is we, we want to be, we want to be healthy. We're part of a church planting network and wanting to see churches throughout this valley planted. And uh, when we think about churches and what God desires, uh, we want to be a healthy church. And we're moving in that direction. What God has done at ABC, has been a, it's been a beautiful thing to see how God has grown a congregation from, from just a living room, moving throughout this area to the facility we have now. I think one of the biggest obstacles you have in our area when you plant a church is getting a facility to meet. And here we are in a, in a permanent location. Just a wonderful thing God is, is doing here. It's, it's a beautiful thing to see how God's working. And, you know, I think beginning a healthy church is a great adventure and, and maintaining that is also a wonderful thing, and, and being able to put a target out there of how to, how to walk and build a healthy church is, is important, and I think the book of Titus is written to Titus as he went to the area of Crete in order to see a healthy church established, and so that's what we're learning together in, in, in this series, and I think it's important for us to know a church is not a church without a mission to fulfill. We're just a gathering otherwise. But but before the church is any sort of institutional way of thinking, the church is a movement. God created the church to be a movement. It's it, it's an organism because it, it has life. God calls us to, to 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 be life in this world, to be light in this world, to make a difference. And so God created the church to be a movement built on Him. And, and we, we shared last week a little bit about what God's desire is for the church. We don't dictate what the purpose of the church is. God created the church. And the reason He created the church is the two greats, the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. Uh, The great commissions in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, go into the world and make disciples. God's about multiplication. It's not what we produce needs to reproduce. God wants to impact your life to then transform the lives of others. We say the purpose of our church, very simplistically, for you to experience a transformation in Jesus that transforms your relationships for Jesus. God created you to know him and enjoy him for all of eternity. You exist in relation to God. God made you in his image. God wants you to enjoy. Enjoy that relationship for which you were created in Him. It's interesting in our society today, we, we tell people what to do. We, we really quit telling people why to do it because, because we don't like to talk about God anymore. We consider that a taboo thing. But the most important truth that you consider is why you were made. What, why did God create you? And so the church is created to put that in the forefront of our minds to understand that God created you with worth, value, and meaning, and that's discovered in Him in relationship to Him and to be that light in this world so other people can discover and walk in relationship with Him too. The Great Commission and the Great Commandment The great commission, make disciples. The great commandment, love God, love others. It's relational. When Jesus is asked, the two most important commands that we could obey, he's in a religious society, and this religious group of people are just waiting for the commandments to write down. And Jesus' statement is all about relationship. Love God, love others. Which makes the church, the basis for which we exist, is about a movement experienced relationally as Jesus works in our lives. And so God commissions the church to be that light into the world, to proclaim the glory of his name that we could benefit from that. And you know, when you study our area of the world, how important it is for you to belong to a church. Look, if you don't count ABC as your home church and you don't think that this will become your church, I just want to encourage you to be a part of a church. You can't make a difference everywhere, but you can make a difference somewhere. And to find a community to belong to and let God use that to multiply. Our our desire isn't about our kingdom. Our desire is about his kingdom. Our hope since we started ABC isn't just to build uh, this ginormous church to exist in this valley. but, But to see this church spread throughout the valley and let God use us to multiply his work in this area. If you plant a church in Utah County, if you plant a church every week of 200 people. You can't even keep up with the population growth, let alone reach the 600,000 people that exist in this valley. And so the need for for church multiplications, for understanding it's it's bigger than just us, is crucial to the work. And I think it's important to also understand that we all play a part of that. For God to see a healthy church. Not, not this facility, not just this people group, but church in general. God's, God's universal church to, to be about multiplication, to see what God can do in us and through us. And, and, and when Paul starts this letter to Titus, you know, we shared a little bit of last week, the first five verses. I'm going to pick up in, in verse five this week uh, of what healthy church uh, looks like. Uh, this week he, he starts in the area of, of leadership. He says in verse 5, just provide for us the foundation here. He, he says in verse 5, For this reason I left you, Titus, in Crete, talking now about a healthy church, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Look, I, I told you last week, Crete, Crete was a rough area. I think he sent Titus there. Titus was a Greek. Titus knew rough areas. And so Paul sends Titus. He sends him to create, create, to set things in order. It literally means things are set out of place, out of joint. And so someone's got to put that joint back in place. And so he tells him these two things, set it in order and appoint leaders. As if to say, in order to set these things in order, you need some godly leadership. Uh, godly leadership uh, is important for the church. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the idea of, of eldership today or what elder is elders were intended to be the leadership of the church. When you read the New Testament, Paul shares with the church how to appoint leaders. He talks about elders, and some might ask the question, well, why not apostles? We shared a little bit about that last week, but you see in the early church, there was this position of apostles, and last week I shared why I think it's biblically why it's not possible to have apostles today, but on top of that, when Paul writes about church leadership, anytime he talks about appointing church leaders, it's always elders, And so, when you think about leadership from a positional standpoint, this idea of of elders comes up. And and you're going to see in in chapter 1, verse 5, when he says appoint elders, it's always in the plural. Or for the most part, it's in the plural. There are a few singular passages in Scripture related to elders, but the majority of eldership is referred to in the plural. So, I think it's important when you talk about church leadership as it's positionally recognized in the form of elders that it be in the plurality uh, form. And if you think about um, church leadership, if, if you're just being introduced to this for the first time, uh, there's, there's a couple of New Testament phrases, but the, the form of leadership in the New Testament is really simplistic. There's elders and there's deacons. But all of us, all of us are called ministers in Scripture. We are all ministers for Christ. We're all called to be leaders for Christ. And then there's these couple of positions that are recognized in Scripture, elders and, and uh, deacons. This term elder for me, if you look in in 1 Peter 5, is is used in a a few different ways. I think uh, this term elder is also used with the term overseer or or bishop. So if you're familiar with that in the New Testament, um, you're going to see this in the book of Titus. when we lay this out this morning that in in chapter 1, verse 5, the term elder is used. And then in chapter 1, verse 7, he then goes from the term elder to use the term overseer uh, uh, synonymously. But you see in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter describing leadership in the church, he says this, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Now he's definitely laying out what what leadership looks like, but I want you to look at these terms that he's using here. He says the word elders, then he says the word shepherd, and then he says the word oversight. Those are all the New Testament words for leadership appointed in the church. And they're all used interchangeably for the same position. And what this is, is elder is the term presbyteros or Presbyterian, where you get the word Presbyterian. And the word overseer or bishop, as some translate, is where we get the word episkopos or episcopalian. And then there's the word shepherd, which is where you get the word pastor. And so I think pastor is more like a function but elder is more position. I see those two terms almost synonymously in Scripture. If you ever hear the word pastor in the, in the Bible or people use, use the word pastor in church, I uh, think it's almost synonymous with the term elder. It's just recognizing the, the, the way that they live out the position of elder. The Bible is very simplistic in the terms of leadership. There's eldership, described in a few ways here, pastor or, or bishop and overseer, and then there's deacon. Now, we talk about these terms, just ask the question, why talk about this type of leadership if everyone in the church may not have these sort of positions? Well, everyone leads and influences. And it's good for us to have a godly target of what leadership, godly leadership should be about. In fact... This, this term for elder that we're going to look in Titus chapter 1 is also written about in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And when Paul writes it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says the position of elder is a noble position to pursue. He's saying, look, not everyone may have that position in the church, but it's not really about position. I mean, we said last week, leadership is about serving. You don't need, you don't need position to be a minister for Jesus. God calls us all to be ministers. God calls us all to serve. And to see this outline of what godly leadership looks like, it's just healthy. Because all of us has a, have a place to influence. The, the church doesn't have to create ministry for you. Like God calls you to go out and light and be that minister in this world. I think sometimes we have this incorrect way of thinking where, where we, we say the church is a movement and then we turn around and we make it an institution. We close ourselves off to the world and, and we fortify ourselves and we start serving each other and we forget about the people around us. Go minister for Jesus. God calls you to, to make a difference, to know your neighbor, love God, and love others. Reach your neighbors. Be a light for Christ. Understand his truth so that you can share it in this world. And having a, the, the, the point in front of us of what godly leadership looks like is important because leadership is all about influence, and God has you in a place to make a difference. To understand what it means to be a leader for Jesus. What type of leader are you? Or what type of leader do you want to be? Titus gives that target. And second, we need to know what healthy leadership looks like because the church needs it. As if when you study leadership, so goes the rest of society, right? When, when leaders fail, so, so things go with it. You know, a church can have all the greatest plans in the world, but if if it's got bad leadership, it can suffer tremendously. And there's plenty of horror stories in church community where bad leadership takes control. In fact, there's a a warning in the book of uh, of Timothy where you're not to appoint anyone too early. Because leadership is to be demonstrated over time so the church can clearly see in the life of an individual whether or not they're trustworthy for such a position. Leadership is all about being a servant. When we think about leadership, some of, the, some of the important passages for me, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, 12, listen to this. It says, and God gave some apostles and some prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Look, here's the reason why. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. 2 Timothy, in a similar, similar phrase, says this, Things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to and teach others also. So it's this, it's this idea of perpetuating God's message through God's people. They carry out the work of the ministry. It's not about one guy ruling the show. God isn't going to judge me about, on how well I do the work of the ministry. God, God will judge pastors and leaders on how well he equips others to do the work of the ministry. And the worst thing that, that a pastor can do, if you want to just get burnt out, is to do everything and let everybody else watch. One of my, one of my favorite memes <laughs> says this, Who said pastoring a church is stressful? I'm 42 and feeling great, right? <laughs> God doesn't creep. Pastors or leaders to do the work of the ministry. It's to equip us to do the work of the ministry, because we're all ministers for Christ. This is why I think the church's structure in the New Testament is so simplistic. They really they have elders, and then you see early on in the Book of Acts, they're like, "Man, we need some to create some uh, more people to do ministry. What how are we going to do this?" And then they just invent deacons. And it's not to say that's not an important role within the church, but that's, that's the only two roles the New Testament church has. Because it understood that everyone was a part of the movement for which God wanted to create it in the church. We're all ministers for Christ. Man wants to make it a hierarchy. To see the institutionalization of what it is and create the superstructure. But God creates us to, to, to multiply I've heard these illustrations of the church that some people say, you know, uh, compare the church. Some people see it as a cruise ship where we all just get in and we're just about ourselves. And some see it as a a battleship where we're all just sent out. But I I like the way J.D. Greer describes it. He says, really, I think it's more like an aircraft carrier. Where you have the base, but you're really launching these planes out in the world to make a, a difference for Jesus. That's what the power of the gospel does when the spirit of God indwells his people and transforms our lives to take his word and to see God multiply. God doesn't call just a few to do the ministry, but all of us to be involved. It's, it would be comparative to like this. If, what, what if you'd think today if you turn on the TV and you watch the Patriots win tonight at 620 when they take on the Packers, right? Like, like what, if, what if Tom Brady got out there and he called a play and then all the linemen are like, that's awesome, Tom. And they ran and sat on the bench and they just applauded him while he just ran the play. That's not gonna work, Right? Or, 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 you know, I've heard the illustration of the church. Christians are a lot like manure, which is not the most encouraging thing, but get us all together when we really stink, but spread us around, man, and we can fertilize the world. You no, know? <laughs> uh, I've heard it compared to this this valley. Like, you look at Utah Lake and then the Jordan River into the Salt Lake, and Utah Lake has life. It's weird life. Some things have like three eyes in there, I'm sure, but... But the Great Salt Lake doesn't really have life other than the disgusting little sea monkeys that you probably had as a child. Um, but, but why no life in the Salt Lake? And someone pointed something out to me once. Is, um, it's because it's got no channel to release its water. You know, Utah Lake, it's got water that flows in, water that flows out. There, there's life there. But you go to the Salt Lake and you die. And so it is with the Christian life. God doesn't work in you to leave that in you but to show the beauty of what he's done. To transform your life. To see yourself as a minister of the goodness of which Jesus has ministered to you. We are successful as a church when we are people that are loving, reaching, and multiplying. Our success isn't seen by what we do when we gather, but in how we live when we leave. Our our, our gathering, gathering isn't just about receiving information, What about transformation? Christianity gets way off basis when we think that your spirituality is determined by how well you are at Bible trivia. (laughs) That's why when you look at leadership, like in the passage of Titus chapter 1, when Paul talks about leaders, he, he talks a little bit about understanding truth. But that's not the emphasis. It's on the character and conduct of the individual which they appoint. Yes, certainly they need to understand the basis of the faith. But their life needs to emulate the truth that they think is so important. It's not just about information, but the way it transforms the life. And so, for us as a church and the success of who we are as God's people, it's seen lived out in community. That's why we create community groups. We understood, look, as a church, Utah is the poorest church in the United States. The state of Utah is the poorest church in the United States. And in order to, you look at the rest of the United States, like you can pay ministers to minister to people. And yeah, you could do that here in Utah, but we have it on a much more slim budget than most other places. So what do you need to do? Well, the body needs to be cared for. And so you need to really teach the body how to care for each other. And so we create community groups for what? To learn to minister to each other. To, to disciple one another in community and care for one another. And, and to reach the communities in which our community groups are part of. Really, our community groups here are micro-churches. The way we demonstrate Jesus to one another. Um, and we talk about healthy leadership. I'm going to show you this real quick, and then I'll move on to the text in and, and, and verses 5 to 9. But, but if you just skipped a little bit past that, I want you to hear what Paul's saying here. He's saying, look, there's healthy leadership. You need that because there's also unhealthy leadership, and you need to recognize that. And so he starts to describe it this way. Verse 10, "...for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain." One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Uh, verse 11, look at this for a moment. He says that they, they've got to be silenced, these type of leaders, because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach, and, and doing it for the wrong reasons. They're teaching, they're teaching wrong things, and they have wrong motives. Sometimes this is easy to recognize, and sometimes it's not. You, you don't always know. Like You can have someone on the outside look completely good by our qualifications of good, but not entirely know their motives. Like, you can be a good person and be the most godless person in the world because your motive for being good has nothing to do with God, right? And so that's not right. Doing the right things for the wrong reason still isn't right. And so you talk about false teachers, it can be a little deceiving, but he's recognizing here there's a couple ways in their lives. The truth they proclaim and the way that they live. Just because you're good doesn't make you godly. But both of these things become an indicator to us. What's the motive Are you good because because your heart's desire is to serve self for sort of gain, or are you good because your heart's desire is to make the glory of God known in your life? Who do you serve? You, self or God? And what do you teach? And so he goes on from there. He says in verse 13, This testimony is true for this reason. Reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Look, they're going to mislead other people if you don't help them understand what truth is. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless of any good deed. Jeez. Um, you ever wonder, like, if you encountered this person that are described in scripture, what, what would they look like? I have yet to meet the person that proclaims to teach truth to say, hey, before I tell you this, I want you to know I'm a false teacher. <laughs> like they don't, there's no label that they wear to say that to, to us, right? So how do you know? How do you know what's true? Because that becomes the basis for determining if you're hearing a lie. And it's interesting when you talk to people today. How do you know what's true? You ask that question. The, the common answer that we get in our society, American society, is if it feels right. And the reason that we get that answer is because we've been taught in our society that we are the origin of all things. Like the way you wake up in the day, the way you determine what you're going to do is you just do what feels right because you're the center of your universe. And so when we ask somebody, how do you know what's true? The answer typically is because it feels right. Like, even in Christian communities, people will say that. How do you know what's right? Oh, I've had this feeling that this is just the confirmation of what is, so therefore it must be true. Right, but, but, but if that's your response for how you determine what's true, let me just, let me just toss out a question you consider. Or if you ever talk to somebody and that's their answer, um, how do you determine what's true? And they say themselves, and simply just ask, then what's the point of the Bible? What the heck does that exist for? Like, if, if you're, you don't need it, if you're the basis for which things are determined or whether or not something's true or not true, then why have it? Like, why are we here? <laughs> like, why, why am I reading these pages? I should just ask you what we should say, right? <laughs> that's, that's, it's inconsequential and unnecessary. Why would God even do that if, if the basis for which things are true are found within you? We don't need this. We just need to prop you up and you tell us things, right? You undermine When we say that we are the basis for determining true by what feels right, we're undermining the necessity for anything holy. Like any people group in society, if they have any type of holy book that they hold to, when you ask them how they know what's true and they look within themselves, they're denying the reason for the existence of the scripture for which they proclaim to be true, whatever that scripture might be. So you ask, why do you have that then? Because the answer is obvious. You're not the basis for truth. Like you, you may be able to discover, experience truth, you may be able to discover truth, but you're not the basis of truth. And, and, and here's a few examples. Like if you have you know, someone crazy come in today and they said, you know, I feel like murdering this person is the correct thing to do. And you think to yourself, well, murdering this person is not the correct thing to do. How do you determine who's right or wrong? They feel like killing is right. You feel like it's wrong. Where do you go? In yourself? Because if they go in their selves, they've already shared with you what they think is right or wrong. you go within yourself, you're determining what's right or wrong. How do you determine who's right or wrong? When when experience determines what's true, you have to appeal, appeal to something beyond you. Anytime in life you hold to a moral ought of what humanity should do, you're appealing to something greater than yourself. The question is, what is it? In Christianity, if we follow the claims of Scripture, the Bible says that, that it is our basis for, for truth. Listen, listen to these contrasting words. In Jeremiah 17, 9, when it says to ourselves, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. So, so the heart can deceive itself. We say we can be the determiner of the truth, but, but the Bible tells us that, that our heart can be misled. Yes, you can experience truth, but you didn't create truth. Truth transcends you. Truth is truth whether you believe it or not. And so the heart can be deceived. But then Jesus says in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through truth, thy word is truth. Or in 2 Timothy 3, 16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work which God calls us to do. So the basis for us isn't self. Yes, you can experience. Yes, you can enjoy. But truth transcends. And here's why it's important. Because your heart doesn't always agree with God. And the question becomes, what will you surrender to? Another example, a guy comes in and says, look, I think it's okay for me to sleep with my girlfriend. And you say, well, I don't think it's okay for you to sleep with your girlfriend. He feels like it should, you feel like he shouldn't. What do, you, what do you go to? Feeling or truth, right? When we experience False teaching. The Bible tells us, Proverbs 3.5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean in your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. It's about where your heart surrenders. Godly leadership is about where your heart surrenders. Um, this is why Paul praised those in Acts. He's listening to this, the Bereans. It says this, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, because they received the word with eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So someone was teaching them something, and they understood that even though, even though what was being taught may have tickled their ears, may have resonated with what they wanted to hear, wh- what they agree with may not always be what God says. And they need a basis for understanding, look, look that might have resonated with my heart, but this, is this really who God is? Is this really what God says? Because my heart can deceive me. And there's a basis for, for truth. And so when you look at false teaching, it's uh, that, important for us to understand the basis for which God's given us is not just to listen to the tickling of ears from what people have to say, but what does God's word say to us? God's pointing out the significance of leadership. Uh, an unhealthy church is built on poor leadership. But God's desire for the church to be healthy is to appoint godly leadership. And so it's uh, on that basis then that first Tim, uh, Titus, excuse me, Titus chapter one verse five, starts to share with us, clarify for us what that looks like. Godly leadership deals with character and truth. And when you look at this list in Titus chapter one, I want us to know it's not a conclusive list. Uh, first, T- uh, Timothy chapter three, talking about appointing elders as well. They have a list there. when you compare those two lists, they're not even the same. Not the same list because it's not a conclusive list. What Paul wants us to understand in, in writing this list is this is a way to indicate in the heart of an individual if their, their life is really given to Christ. I mean, there's lots of things you can include in this list that aren't on here. Does this person pray? I mean, praying is a pretty godly thing. That's not even on here. Does this person fast? And fast can be a godly thing done for the right reasons. Is that, that's not on here. Right? So this isn't a conclusive list, but it's a way of helping us recognize what godly leadership uh, looks like. And this is something demonstrated over time. That's why 1 Timothy 3, verse 6 says it's not a new convert here. But all of us would, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, all of us aspiring to this type of character, it would only be a blessing to the church that if we pursued godliness, see ourselves as ministers for Christ and to take that serious. And so he says this, Appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach. Um, This statement, above reproach, is is said in verse 6 and in the the beginning of verse 7. It's also how Paul introduces it in 1 Timothy 3. I think this phrase, above reproach, is sort of the summary way of looking at an elder in, in, in all of it. This guy should be above reproach. And then he begins to explain what that looks like in the context of godly living. And so then he says this, he should be above reproach, the husband of one wife. This literally means a, a one-woman uh, man. So this eliminates all other uh, sexual sin in this world from, from pornography to I don't, whatever you can think of. The, the wife that you have in your home, are you devoted to her and her alone, right? The husband of one wife having children who believe. Uh, some translations say children who are faithful. I think the King James says that. The, uh, the HC whatever-S whatever-B or whatever that's called or GCSB or something like that. The, the, a few translations say faithful and, and some say believe. And there's a little bit of debate here what this means. Does this mean every kid in the home needs to be a believer? Or does this mean every kid in the home needs to be faithful to what the family is doing? I think at the very least it's faithful if not believer. Uh, I would lean more towards the faithful side, though. And, and the reason I say that is this, that the early church began in homes. And when you think about elders leading the church, the family needs to be on board to serve the church that gathers in the home. And so you see this commitment as a family, and children who are faithful, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, but rather uh, they, they're there to serve as, as they're following the headship of the home. And what they're saying here in this leadership picture, in in just verse 6, is that the home is a micro picture of the church. Godly leadership from the church or for the church comes from godly leading in the home. So when you think about your home life, you think about the church, the church is a family. You think about leading the church in a healthy way, you want to go to your godly homes as an example of what a godly home should look like and lead the godly family for which God has called us to be. You think about kids, though. I've heard it said, um, God gives you kids and you get what you get. Some are low maintenance, some are medium maintenance, and some are beyond that. Kids are... A life lesson of learning about you and your walk with God. (laughs) You know, I sometimes will say jokingly, when you get married, a piece of you dies for the benefit of your relationship. But when you have kids, all of you goes with that, right? There's no such thing as privacy anymore. One time I would like to go to the bathroom without anybody bothering me, but when I retire, right? (laughs) But here's what Paul's saying. Your family is your first ministry. You see some people sacrifice family for the church. And guys, that's not going to be me. When I think about our church family and all the ministries we could do, i, I you know, just simply say this. God doesn't call us to do everything. And I don't feel like I need to compete with a church down the road to impress anybody. God doesn't call us to be like every other church. God calls us to be us. Right? I have a young family. And I, I will not sacrifice young family for the church um, I care about the church I love the church I give my life to the church but I care about my family because that's my first priority right? um, ministry should look like this if family becomes your first priority when you have young kids first you minister to them but then you get to minister with them God calls the family to bless the world The first institution God created when he made in the garden of Eden was the family And then sin happened. And then God created the church to be the place to emulate what godly families should look like so that in our own personal families as we minister, we can understand that. We need godly leaders that lead families to be examples. Because it's hard. Family is hard. It's a blessing and it's hard. And you get the joy when they're young, especially to minister to them. So as they grow older, you get to minister with them. Now there isn't a clear cut way to say, okay, now we're ministering to them. Okay, now we've hit this official age and now we minister with them. No, you're always ministering to them. But there, at some point it just starts to turn. Like I, we just took our kids to um, uh, to Florida and we we're ministering in a church. And, and I, I, I love my wife. I, I think she's smarter, wiser than I am. But but we're sitting there in this church trying to care for these people and, and just love on them as they love on us and ministering to them. And my wife, we're having we have dinners every day at this church and. My wife just looks at our five-year-old and she says to him, you know what you should do? You should go around the tables and just see, it was an older generational church, see if they need any help. And so he goes around and he just starts collecting plates. Now, I could tell you all kinds of stories of things that he does wrong, but we'll just stick with the right stories there. So, so he goes around and just collects the plates of the people at the table. And you should have just seen him beaming because he's older Southern people. He's, he comes in all courteous, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. I mean, in the South, you don't say that, you get shot on sight. And, and then he says this and picks up a plate and throws it away and... And they just thought he was the greatest thing. And he's just smiling, having an opportunity to serve. It's great to see your kids light up when they get to see them themselves making a difference for Jesus. And, and God's got you in a place to help them understand how to do that. Right? I need to move faster than this. But, but this is the point. As is, is godly family becomes, becomes that place, and to minister with them. And, and uh, as you start by ministering to them. And then he says this, verse 7, let's move on. He says, For the overseer or elder must be above reproach, again, making that statement, as good stewards... And he describes what good stewards look like, caring about God's kingdom more than self. And he describes what self looks like. You're not self-willed. You're not quick-tempered. You're not addicted to wine. You're not pugnacious, which is, to me sounds like a great thing to be, but really means you don't just immediately punch people in the face when they make you mad or really fight them at all. What what do you have to say for Crete to be like this? Like, okay, you're not blowing your lid, getting drunk, and beating the snot out of people. That's what he's saying right? So this is not what a leader should look like, And, and not about their own personal gain, but rather this. Hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Hospitality, I've told you this before, in the New Testament deals more with unbelievers than believers. It's how you treat the outside world. When people don't belong, do you treat them as outsiders? Do you treat them as insiders? Do you love them as Jesus loves them? Do you meet them where they're at and care for them as Christ would care for them? Jesus loves everybody. And so should we. Love God, love others. And love, look, love is not about loving people when it's easy. Love is about loving people when it's difficult. That's exactly what Jesus did when he gave his life for you despite your sin. Jesus' love was unending. That's what transformed your life. That's what a godly leader is. When it's difficult, what comes out? You love what is good. You're sensible. You're just, devout, and self-controlled. You're not going off angry, getting drunk, punching people in the face. But you're about serving people for the benefit of what Jesus wants to do in their life. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So there's truth. But the truth needs to be demonstrated in character. So let me throw this out now that I have just a little bit of time left. This is a can of worms to open up here in just this moment. But, but, you know, all this is written to men. Did you notice that? I mean, he's saying this to guys. What, what about women? Ladies, where are you fall in this? Where does God want to work in your life? This, this passage is specific to, to guys. And I, I want you to know women in leadership in the church, I would say, is important. This isn't a primary issue of theology, but it's important to find a place for everyone to serve in Jesus. So, so if this is written to guys, where, where is why is Paul writing this just to guys? Like, is Paul sexist pig? Right? Where do you fit, ladies? What does it mean to be godly leaders? Can women lead? Uh, and I would say, when you read both Old and New Testament, the answer is certainly. Um, women can lead, especially when you see the illustrations in Scripture. There's, there's Priscilla, there's Deborah, there's Miriam, there's like 7,000 people named Mary. Um, there's Esther, there's, there, there's Athalia, there's Tabitha, there's Priscilla. Um, one of the most important books in the New Testament is, is um, the book of Romans. Uh, and People look at that thing and they're like, ah, you know, like they just look at it as like the only book in the New Testament. They love it so much. And when you look at the book of Romans, the person that takes Romans to, uh, to, to be read is a lady named Phoebe. And when you carry one of Paul's letters, you also carried with that the responsibility to represent what Paul is saying there if people have any complications. So Phoebe would have been there pronouncing God's, God's truth through Paul as he wrote that letter for the church to understand If they had any question about what Paul would have written. So women lead, absolutely. You know, as a church, we do not believe, or I do not believe, in a gender-biased Holy Spirit. Meaning, when 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says... Uh, We hold the priesthood, that it's not gender specific, that all of us, men and women, are priests in Christ. We all hold the priesthood. When God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the garden is described as a temple. And both man and woman operating in that temple as a priest. They're both leading. God, God created them equally. When Jesus in the New Testament invites women to follow after him and be disciples, that was actually a pretty radical concept in Jesus' day because women were looked at as less than, as property. And here Jesus is inviting women in to be disciples and follow him. Men were disciples of other men that followed their teaching, but women being invited in, that was unique to the culture. But even when you read First Corinthians uh, 14 verse 26 it says both the men and women when you gather together singing together praying together taking god's word and sharing that truth together that's what that's what community looks like in him we we are all ministers in jesus so why then when paul's writing uh, this eldership to the church is he only specifically referring to men uh, I, I think because what he's doing here is he's creating the model all the way back from the garden of eden And when you appoint elders, the, the model for eldership is the same model for God's creative work in the family. Meaning how you see the function of the family is what Paul's thinking about as he thinks about the function of leadership in the church. And so I would go this far to say this. You cannot have a godly elder or a godly male in that leadership position without godly women there to support this is not supporting just an individual. This is, this, this is appointing, a, this is not appointing just an individual. This is appointing a family. You see that? And, and when Paul's describing this in this passage, I would give you a, just as a, another comparison just to think about. In, in Timothy, the like passage, he says this. Two guys, he must, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control. If a man does not manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So he's thinking family, Right? So when you think about pointing to leaders, what does the family look like? And, and, and if you want to get a family model in Scripture, Ephesians 5, I, don't, I couldn't bring up this whole passage. It really starts in verse 21. But as it relates to the husband, it says this, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wife must, ought to be to their husband and everything. Husband, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. If you start in verse 21, it literally says, submit to each other. So it's seeing this wife serving her husband. And then it says to the husband, husband, go die for your wife. It's this mutual submission for the benefit of what Jesus wants to do. God creates us equally. And he also creates us uniquely. Now you think in a a company, when you go hire jobs, you don't hire everybody to do the same thing. The company can't do what it's created to do if everyone does the same thing. God gifts us uniquely. And so it is in the role of husband and wife. That's why we have two terms, husband and wife. There's this symbiotic beauty in that relationship that produces the health that God desires. And guys, God holds your butt on the line to make sure you carry that responsibility seriously. Now look, I want you to understand what he's saying in 1 Timothy chapter three. He doesn't call you dictator. You're not a benevolent dictator. He calls you a manager. Manager is different than dictator, right? A manager doesn't have to do everything. A manager is just responsible to make sure it gets done in a healthy way. But a manager is smart enough to know you need to hire people smarter than you in certain areas to see that that job functions in a healthy way so it produces the health for which that was designed to do. That's why the position's there. And so you learn to lean on each other. It's sort of like this. When you think about the outdoors, there's, there's this way we treat the outdoors as a gardener and there's the way you treat the outdoors as a park ranger. A park ranger just sort of lets nature be as nature is designed to be. But a gardener gets their hands dirty to till the ground to produce the life, right? And that's what a manager is. You don't just say, oh, God gave me family. I hope you guys work out in the end. Woo, I'm going to stand back here and just do my thing. And uh, I don't know, good luck to you, right? No, you get your hands dirty. What does the soil need? What do you need to till? And so when you think about godly leadership in the church, guys, I want us to know when you appoint a leader, you appoint a family. You don't have godly family without a team working together. Because we don't have godly church. God calls us a family. We don't have godly church without us working together. That's what Paul's getting at in this passage of scripture. I need to end. <laughs> And you read a list like this, which I just quickly went through. You see, God's model for church leadership related to family. And sometimes, guys, I, I read a list like this, and I, I want you to know um, it's sobering. Just understanding what godliness looks like can be sobering. Because I think we recognize in our lives we fall short. I mean, you can think in the, in the Church of Crete where they're like, Let's do godly leaders. Let's point godly leaders. Who can we get as a leader? Well, let's get John, because he's really good at just beating people up. You know, he's tough, right? And they're like, no, that's not godly leaders. Like, oh, what is it, you know? And then when Paul writes this out, they're like, ah. Looking around the room, you're like, I think we all fail. <laughs> we all fail at this. And it's true. We do. We do. And so I think Paul starts off Titus this way for just a sobering place in our lives just to be real. If we want the church to move forward, we need godly leaders. We're all called to be ministers for Christ. So where is my heart? My family is my first ministry, my spouse or my kids. And how, how are we producing that health in my family to bless the world? I may not have an A plus today. So, what do I do? I recognize this in, in Psalm 23, one of my favorite verses. I shared with my kids this last week in verse 6. He says, He's pointing out to us, though I walk through the valley of a shadow of death, he says this in verse, 20, in verse 6 Even in our failures, God's goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Look, God is for you, God wants you to thrive. He's not pointing out godly leadership so we can look at how bad we are and say, forget it, I'm done. Or or, man, God, just tell me what what a horrible person. God's pointing out godly leadership so we can see the goal for which he's called us to because God wants us to thrive as his community. So what do we do? We pause our hearts and we just confess. Maybe before our family, but we just confess. God, lead me in you. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah.